here this morning. I'm trying to go paperless, which is, we'll see how that goes. Uh, Evan's laughing because (laughs) uh, sometimes paperless is is, um, detrimental. I do have a backup copy up here, so I did prepare for worst case scenario. We're continuing on in our, our series of All in the Family. Uh, today we're continuing on, I think, two weeks ago. Uh, we had a little break in between, but two weeks ago, Phil shared with us, as we were looking at couples, we looked at Priscilla and Aquila. Today, Lord willing, we'll be looking at four couples, or four types of couples, I'll say. The, the first couple, the lying couple, broken couples, as we'll see several in example, and then one that I've called the odd couple or the, the last couple. We've been enjoying this series of All in the Family to think about how we can, as a family of God, work together and help one another. And so as we go through these, I'll say, different people groups or groups that we have here in the family of God, we want to use it to think about how we can minister to one another to help us understand a little bit the challenges that each group faces. So as we uh, looked at singles, we looked at the challenges they face. As we have been here for the last couple weeks and thinking about married couples, we think of the, the challenges that they, that they face here this morning. It's a, not everything I'm going to share this morning is all, all pleasant. So not everything that's in the Bible is all all pleasant. The Bible clearly reflects uh, humanity. It clearly reflects both the good and bad parts of what we see in humanity because it it's all pointing to one thing, our need for a Savior, our need for the Lord Jesus Christ, our need for Him because none of us, no matter how good we look, how good we look up front, how good we perform, how good... We are and what we do for others, it's all not good enough because we don't meet the standard, which is perfection. And because we don't meet that standard, we we have a broken relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to restore that relationship with God, the Lord Jesus Christ has come and he took our place. He took our punishment. The only one who was perfect came and he took our sin and he died for us, even though he did not deserve death. And because of that, we can have fellowship with him. Let's just uh, pray as before we get into the, the first the first couple. Father, we ask for your help this morning, both in hearing and in speaking, clarity of thought, clarity of. I'll say communication of uh, what you've given. Father, help uh, us to realize that uh, we are here to submit ourselves to your word. And I look to share just the truth from your word here this morning. Help, Help that to be an encouragement to us and also a challenge to us to uh, change our lives, to be in submission to it. I know it's a challenge to me at times, a, a challenge to my understanding. And uh, I'm not going to lie, there are difficult things and things that 
we wish that weren't said in your in your word, but they are. And so we need to uh, submit ourselves to what it says. And so we um, thank you for providing it. As you have said, your word is profitable for all things. And so we're uh, thankful that we have it and thankful that you gave it to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first we're going to look at the, the first couple. Turn with me to Genesis Genesis chapter 2. I know we've spent a lot of time talking about the first couple, but I, as I was thinking back uh, through our, our conversations, I, I don't think we ever uh, gave a, the God's definition of a couple. And so, as, so we're going to look at here in Genesis chapter 2, as God creates the couple, the first union, we're going to note some, some key things that are there. So Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says this, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Skipping to verse 15, Then the Lord took man took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. So he's at man, he created him, he given him a work. Uh, skipping down to verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. What is God's definition of a couple? God defines a couple here in Genesis chapter 2 as one man and one woman joined together as one. Uh, Phil alluded to these verses two weeks ago, or shared them as well, that the two shall become one flesh. There's something unique about this union of man and woman together. They are no longer separated, but now something different together. Key things I want to note from this, God said he would make a helper for man. It's in the singular form. I guess I want to be clear about this. Therefore, the biblical definition of a couple is not made up of a man or woman with multiple partners. That is not God's design. If it was God's design, he would have created multiple women for Adam. Instead, he created one man and one woman, a helper. 
a singular helper for her. And in searching for that helper compared to man, no beast or bird was capable. Now, this you may be saying, why are you going to this detail of a couple cannot be a man or a woman with an animal? I think it's because there's certain things today in our thought process as human beings, as we continue down the path that we are here in our culture, that we might not be too far away that people start to say that. But God's biblical definition, God here clearly shows that as he looked at man and asked for a helper, Adam reviewed all the animals, all of them. And then it says there was not a helper found that was comparable to him. Mankind was uniquely created in the image of God. Uniquely created in the image of God. And then God created a woman for a man to help her that was comparable to him. You see this uh, going from not finding anything that was comparable to something to, to creating someone that was God created her in a uniquely different way. Do you ever wonder why God just didn't create Eve the same way he created Adam? Why he didn't form her out of the dust of the ground? Why didn't he just breathe the breath of life into her? I mean, wouldn't that be the same? But I think he was pointing out that the women, well, women and men have a lot in common. They're definitely clear, distinct differences between them. And so by creating her a different way, he further emphasized that point. He also, in a way, in his creation, shows the relationship partnership that between the man and the woman. He's taken her from his side. This thought of coming alongside each other, although distinctly different, they are partners together. And then this thought of the two shall become one flesh. Usually we think about that idea of one flesh as just the the sexual union between a man and a woman. But it goes beyond beyond that. Aaron Cerrone, uh, he's a a counselor. He suggests that Adam is isn't merely saying here is when he says bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's he isn't uh, merely saying here is another human who is similar to me in my ways, or here is one who is not a fish, animal, reptile. No, for Adam, the one flesh is more of a joyous reunion than a novel union. Adam knows that the woman was created from his very own body. It's a reunion. He was created for his very own body. He later goes on to state that in marriage, the one flesh union between a husband and wife is analogous to the previous union between Adam and his rib. Their lives are so bound up together that one impacts the one will also impact the other. So it's almost indistinguishable between the two. But that that thought of a, a reunion he's taken from man. Now, I can tell you, I'll make that trade any day. My rib for my wife, any day. I got the best deal out of that. I mean, I think some of you other brothers can say the same thing. 
Lastly, marriage was not intended merely for procreation or sexual pleasure. But these things are part of being a couple. They are not all that there is to being a couple. God put man in the garden to tend and to keep it. And he gave man a helper to work alongside with him. Again, Aaron Cerrone states, God's principal aim for marriage is that they focus outwardly on serving side by side for his kingdom. Here, Adam and Eve are working side by side with one another in the work that God gave Adam. So, too, we have God's design that couples work side by side in the work that they have given them. But if this is God's design for couples to be one man and one woman, why are there so many broken relationships when we look around? we got to remember that God's design for a couple was before the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Once man sinned, like creation, we see a broken version of what God originally intended. We read in Romans that creation groans and labors awaiting the coming day when it will be reconciled. Also, too, we see that in couples. We see this struggle as we have our own sinful natures together as we try to work together. And that's why I think we see strife and labor as we get into this couple relationships. Until we are reconciled, we can use examples of others as warnings for understanding of how we can minister to one another. With that, let's look at our next example, the the lying couple. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. This is probably one of the a couple that everybody uh, tends to think about. So remember a biblical the biblical uh, definition of a couple is one man and one woman together as in union as one working together working together outwardly focused towards serving God for his, furthering his kingdom. Here we have a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, that are they're, they're working together, but uh, unfortunately for the, the wrong things. Uh, Acts chapter 5 and verse 1, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, rise, Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. Well, it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband 
are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Here we have a couple. They're they're working together, but they have conspired together to, to deceive. Just previously in the previous passage, we have a contrast of Barnabas who came and sold his property and he sold it and gave it. And because of that, there's some praises given to him. I believe Ananias and Sapphira wanted that same praise. Warren Wearsby says that their sin was energized by Satan, motivated by pride and directed against God's church. I think that's why the judgment against Ananias and Sapphira, which seems very severe here in in the book of Acts, uh, is very swift. It reveals God's displeasure with sin, particularly dishonest, dishonesty in his body, the church. So what can we learn from this? For us to be on guard for Satan's schemes as a couple. We are together to help protect one another. I can think of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if one falls, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him is alone when he falls, for he does not have anyone to help him. This thought of helping one another. Sometimes we are blinded to seeing Satan using us or tempting us or deceiving us. And together, uh, we can help with help each other uh, combat that. Just a thought. How do we combat Satan's schemes? Well, I think Ephesians 6 tells us that. It says to put on the whole arm of God. That means we stand against the schemes of the devil. That is, when you go to battle... You don't wait till you're in the battle to put on your armor. I think sometimes we as Christians think in that way. Hey, I've got time to put on my armor. And really, you don't. So uh, I think that passage in Ephesians is something we should be uh, considering and putting on our armor to protect ourselves and to protect our spouses as a couple. And, you know, we could get pretty quick to see the the faults in the other person. Um, But just like in an airplane where they tell you when there's a loss of cabin pressure, they tell you not to assist the other person first before helping yourself. And why is that? Because if you assist the other person, you may end up collapsed and both of you are in trouble. So just like that, we should be considering if we're putting on the armor of God ourselves as a, and to pr- help protect our spouse. One of the things I, I want to point out here is God is not interested in how much we give, but he's more interested in our hearts. It's not the money that was the, the issue with Ananias and Sapphira. It was the fact that they lied about what they gave. In fact, I think they would have received just as much praise if they they would have given what they had and for what they sold it. But uh, instead, they sought the praise of men instead of the praise of God. So there's some warnings there in the, the lying 
couple. And then there are several broken couples. We're going to skip around, but and I don't think I've captured them all. This is kind of a very difficult uh, thing to teach on and to think about. We have couples that are where a person is unloved, where they're barren, where there's unfaithfulness in the marriage. Those are laid out for us here in Scripture. Those are all real dangers for us today as well. Things that people struggle with. It's not that, I'll say that the title of broken couple does not mean that there's anything wrong with these people. It's just that this is what we see. It's different from what God intended. That's why it's broken. Not that they... The uh, there's a judgment on the people or there's a judgment on you if you struggle with these things. Turn with me to Genesis 29 and we'll look at the the unloved. Now, we already have a, a polluted, distorted view of uh, marriage here when we look at it because we have Jacob with two wives. So we already have this uh, distortion of what God intended. Um, Genesis 29 and 31. It says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. Unloved. It's a real danger in couples to have someone who's unloved in the, the marriage relationship. What do we do as a church family. What do we know about this? I, I, I guess I'll, I'll say as we go through these, as you look through Scripture, specifically as we look through the group of Scripture on the, those who are barren, I'll say this, there's no one-size-fits-all answer. The way God responds to each couple when they're barren is different. Our response to people in different situations will be different. But there are some overarching things. If you look at verse 32 of that same chapter, too far, verse 32 of the same chapter, Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. She said, because the Lord sees my affliction, the Lord sees my affliction. God, God saw her affliction. He understood what she was going through. And in some ways, he responded in his own way and in his own time. And I think it would be easy for us to say, well, why didn't God respond differently? Why didn't he make Jacob love her um, but I think what he does first is he he helps Leah see a change in mind in her heart. So she she realizes that God sees her affliction. And if you go to the next verse, she says this because the Lord has heard. So he heard he hears what she's uh, praying to him. He hears what she says. Yet she. Again, it doesn't change her situation that she's in. It's interesting in verse 34, it almost goes to the, to the, 
to the point where she knows that God sees and God hears, but then it's almost like she gets to the point where God is not acting. So she she says this. Now, now this time, verse 34 of the same chapter, and this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him as three sons. I have borne him. Something that she had, a, she had accomplished or said she had accomplished. But look as she gets to the fourth, uh, next to the next verse, verse 35, which she has Judah. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. Again, their focus is at least in this instance, is not on her husband, but it's on the right place. It's on the Lord. I'm going to tell you that if you read through Genesis 30, her struggles of feeling unloved remain. It doesn't get rid of the problem that she has. How would we handle this situation in our local church? How would we love those who we see are being unloved by their spouses? It's a challenge. Again, no there's no one way, no run, one right answer or one way easy solution to these type of problems. But I think there is this thought process of getting off of looking at the problem or focusing on the problem and focusing on the Lord is the first step. But that's, that doesn't ease all the issues. And so we as local church for those who are in our fellowship who may be unloved, how do we love them? What do we do? How do we care for them? Then we have this second group that's barren. Interesting that it's uh, now the uh, opposite side. Like I said, it was a it's a already a tainted view of what God intended. But Jacob with Rachel here is talked about in verse. 31, the last part of verse 31 says this, but Rachel was barren. And this was a a big deal to her, skipping to chapter 30 of Genesis, chapter 30, verse 1. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. and He said, am I in the place of God? who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb. One of the observations I I had from this, sometimes we think Jacob's response is appropriate, but it's interesting that if you go back and see why her womb was closed, it's because Jacob did not love Leah. He does have some culpability in what was, what was going on there. So, uh, Say to husbands, be, be don't be quick to to respond in anger when you think things are out of your control because maybe they are. I think it's it's interesting that this was almost caused by Jacob himself. This this issue between the sisters. Uh, the next, uh, like I said, there's three there's three couples here uh, that are that are better than I I saw in scripture. The second one is Hannah and Elkanah in, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So let's go there. 1 Samuel chapter 1. So we have this, the unloved and now uh, broken couples where they're, they're barren. And these are issues that couples can have. 
1 Samuel uh, chapter 1 and verse 5, and maybe uh, starting in verse 4. When the day came and Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penea, his wife, and to her sons and her daughters. I guess it's, take a, a, a pause here. I guess it's interesting for me to see here's a, another distorted view of what a couple is, where he has two wives. That just came to my mind while we were reading. Verse 5, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as, uh, uh, sorry, her rival, verse 6, her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her and she would weep and she would not eat. We see the impact of first this bitterness and now I say the sorrow we see in Hannah from being barren. And lastly, I'm going to come back to Genesis here to talk about being barren. But the last couple that is barren is Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. So we have these three different couples that were barren. Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijam. And he and his wife, from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren. They were both advanced in years. Notice it has nothing to do with the couple's faithfulness to the Lord that they are barren. I guess I want to look at how each of these were resolved because they're each resolved in a, in a unique way. We go uh, to Genesis. Actually, let's stick here in Luke and go backwards. In Luke here, we see that God's timing is not always our timing. Here we have Zachariah and Elizabeth. They prayed for a child. They prayed, who knows how long, many years. And we can see from Zachariah's response that he's given up on that prayer. He doesn't think that the Lord's going to answer it. That's why he's so surprised when the angel angel tells him uh, in verse 13, it says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your petition has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. As we struggle through these things, God's timing is not always our timing. And sometimes we give up our thoughts or something we've asked of the Lord, um, maybe because his weight we've taken as a no. But here we have God clearly answering much later than when the petition was made. So there's this kind of, I'll say, as we would call it, a delayed response from God, although I would say it's all God's perfect timing. And then if you go back to, to 1 Samuel, we see almost, almost the exact opposite happen for Hannah. Her prayer is answered almost immediately even though it says this, uh, verse 19 of 1 Samuel chapter 1, And Elkanah 
had a relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she called his name Samuel, saying, I've asked him of the Lord. Uh, we can clearly see that her the response is in such a, a time and a, and a succession of her requests that she recognizes that it's God answering her prayer, her, her request to him. He's taking care of her sorrows. And, and it's interesting that the Lord provides above and beyond what she asked for, right? She gave, she gave Samuel back to the Lord. Um, she dedicated him to the Lord as she had promised the Lord. I'm sure that was very difficult for her to do. Uh, after all those years of waiting. But we read in 1 Samuel chapter 2.21 that the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived again and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. So she was able to have more children. So we see that God responds differently. In Zechariah and Elizabeth, he had uh, kind of a, a wait. Here he uh, responded to Hannah almost immediately. And then in Genesis chapter 30, we read from Rachel, Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. We have this thought. Then the Lord remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. I guess I want to remind us as we go through these trials as couples that God hears us. He hears your petition, your request, your plea. I think of that, the unjust judge, the parable of the unjust judge and the widow that comes before him. And she came before him night and day. I don't know if that was what Rachel was like, but it it, it kind of sounds like that from the passage that God listened to her and opened her womb. So we see that God responds differently to different people in different ways. Each response is unique and each response is in a, a loving way. That may be the, the toughest of all. Turn with me to Hosea. The toughest example of all uh, of broken couples, at least I saw in Scripture, was Hosea and Gomer. This thought of unfaithfulness in marriage and the difficulties that um, creates. Uh, here in Hosea, we read... Here, starting in chapter 1, verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land has committed flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Skipping to chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, so here we see... Sorry, maybe I should give some context in between here. Uh, she bears sons. And basically what the Lord is doing through Hosea's life is showing the relationship he has with Israel. And so this is a verse 13 is actually the Lord speaking of relationship of Israel with himself. But I, I think it gives the picture of the unfaithfulness uh, that. Hosea experienced with Gomer. Verse 13, 
So it says this, I will punish her for the days of the Baals where she used to offer sacrifices to them. That's talking to Israel about Israel and adorned herself with her earrings and her jewelry and followed her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. So there's this thought of purposeful, this purposeful act of unfaithfulness. Then we get to chapter 3. Hosea directs the, is directed by the Lord. In verse 1, it says, The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I brought her. For myself, for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley, and I said to her, "You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I be also towards you." Remember, we talked about there's this one flesh union. What happens to one happens to another. I could tell you. I guess I, I won't say the church is not immune to having these type of situations where there's unfaithfulness in the marriage. Uh, It's interesting here that Hosea continues to love his wife despite her unfaithfulness. And I I think such such a great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Something I think is very difficult to do in this situation. I don't know if I was in this situation, if I would have the same thought or heart that Hosea does. But I can tell you firsthand of what I've seen that when there's unfaithfulness in marriage, it doesn't just affect the couple. It affects others. It could affect the children. It affects the broader family. It's difficult. I can think of uh, just a situation that we know of and just the thought of how the church can help in these situations there was a, a testimony, uh, unfortunately, of the, the couple we, we know that is in a situation of uh, the unfaithful partner's family. Uh, and it was an accusation that the, the person who had custody of the children was not, was not really truly a single parent because the church was supporting them, because they had all this huge support group. What a testimony for the local church. What a testimony for Christians to have in this situation where they come alongside and help, not in big ways, just in small ways, so that others can see that those who are not intended to fill in for this situation are and are helping out in small things. Lord, help us as we as we think about how we can minister to people who are possibly in those situations. Now, these are only three examples. I think there's other areas of struggle that we can have as couples. But here's just this are just three that I, I saw from here. And like I said, there's no one size fits all answer. So we have to treat each situation differently. But I think we need to show the love of Christ in each situation and that can be different in each situation and how that comes across. 
We'll let the Spirit of God speak to you on how, if, if you know of a situation like this, how you should uh, respond and help. Lastly, I have the odd couple. It's not, <laughs> it's not really the odd couple, but it's the, uh, turn with me to Revelation. It's really Christ and the church. And the reason why, uh, Revelation uh, 19, the reason why I called it the odd couple is because of who's involved. You could not find two people further apart than Christ and the church. We have Christ. He is described as the bright morning star, the Prince of Peace. He's described as being wonderful, mighty God. He's everlasting. He's all-powerful. He's perfect. He's loving. He's always good. Basically, the perfect husband for the for the bride. And then on the other side, we have the the church. It's made up of sinners, those who at times are unfaithful. Still, even after we're redeemed, unloving, unkind. We have this one who's the prince. Yet we have no social standing. We have no right to even know the prince, or to, to be in a relationship with him. Yet here we have these two together as one. And it's through Jesus Christ's ministry of reconciliation. I painted this kind of bleak picture for the, for the church here. But if you look in Revelation, what do you see here in Revelation 19, 7 and 8? We read this, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine living, bright and clean, for the fine living is the righteous acts of the saints. We have made ourselves ready. And it's the righteous acts, not for salvation, but because of out of our love for our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is only made possible because Jesus Christ comes with the ministry of reconciliation. Second Corinthians 5 talks about this ministry of reconciliation. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... That means if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you have realized that you're a sinner. You have realized that your own righteousness, your own good works, nothing you can do has any merit to bring you favor before God. And you have faith and belief that the work that Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross, belief that he took the penalty for your sins, says you will be saved. We have this ministry that he has of reconciliation. So Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17, so if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all things are from God, 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Just as God gave Adam and Eve as a couple a work, we have this work with the Lord Jesus Christ, as we are coupled with him, this ministry of reconciliation here of those who are at enmity or separated from God and bringing them together to him. And that the ability is only through what Jesus Christ has done. Through the fact that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, took on our sin for our behalf so that we may become the righteousness of God in Him. And I believe that God has this ministry of reconciliation even in these broken relationships. He desires relationships that reflect what He intended. Now, are they going to be perfect? No. Are we ever going to be perfect this side of glory? No. But it's interesting, in heaven, there's neither marriage nor given to marriage. So this is something for here and now that we have as couples. We are joined together as one. So what happens to one happens to another. We are joined in our our work together, our work that God has given us. But we know that sin is, is in this world and it pollutes that picture or that what God intended. So let us think about as a as a church how we can minister to one another in the struggles that we may have as couples. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your your word. We thank you that you are at the work of reconciling that you are at the work of bringing back together things that were broken, fixing them. We thank you that through your Son, we have a right relationship with you. Father, I pray for those who don't have that relationship with you, that they uh, would see that any work that they do, anything that they try to accomplish, any anything that they try to do isn't good enough. Father, your standard is perfection, and no matter how good we are, we're never perfect. And so the only one who was was your your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his perfection, he took on our sin. We thank you for that. We thank you that... He loved us so much. He loved his bride so much that he laid down his life for her. That although we were unloving, uncaring, unkind, 
He loved us. He loved us to a point beyond what we deserved. And in so doing, we love him because he first loved us. Father, I pray for the couples in this chapel. I I pray for them. And um, we know that there are are just difficulties uh, just in, in maybe what we consider small things, but there's difficulties we have as couples. It's two sinners living together, two sinners trying to please and honor you. We pray that you would help us to be uh, alert to the devil's schemes that he has, that we would be having the armor on and protecting one another. Help us to see each other as you intended marriage to be, that there is this closeness, there is this bond that is so intertwined that whatever happens to one affects the other. And so that we would realize that we realize that as help us to know how to minister to others who are hurting and in need. Lord, your word doesn't really give us a formula. It doesn't give us a simple answer. Only things it tells us is to love one another, to care for one another, to consider others better than ourselves. And so we pray that you would help us in these as, as we deal with these difficult situations. Help us as we go this week to uh, take hope that your son, this relationship we have in your son, this perfect relationship because of what your son has done for us and who he is, that we have comfort, that we have a husband that is caring for us despite what we do, despite who we are. Help us, to, though, to not despise that love, but to um, reciprocate that love back to him. Help us to be about your work together with you as you desire to see all men come to, to salvation and do not desire any to perish. So we pray that we would have that same heart's desire. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.